Hey everyone, welcome back to the Farmers Show, Farming for a Passive Income Show. Um, we have today Stuart Heath, who is a passionate entrepreneur, leader, over 35 years experience implementing efficient operations to transform organizations um, into path of profitability. We have got to hear more about that, Stuart. Uh, he is also the CEO and founder of Harvard Grace Capital and a real estate syndica syndicator. So Stuart, welcome to the show, man. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Very exciting. Yeah. Absolutely. Honor. Glad to hear. And you're out of Tennessee, right? In the middle of farm country? I am. Um, I'm currently in Fayetteville, Tennessee, uh, which is um, Lincoln County, really a bunch of farmers, but we're just above um, uh, Huntsville, Alabama, which is one of the most high-tech places in, on the planet. Uh, so it's really kind of the best of both worlds. Um, uh, you know, I live in the beautiful rural setting and then whenever i need anything i just drive 20 minutes down the road so that sounds great so you're saying yeah. like you can go outside and go to the bathroom and no one sees you <laughs> um i'll neither confirm nor deny that so, uh... <laughs> perfect answer perfect answer <laughs> so tell me a little about about um how you how you guys are implementing efficient operations um that kind of piqued my interest when i when i saw your info come across yeah, um, I'm certainly um, applying a lot of that to our real estate investing, but Harvard Grace Corporation um, actually started as a fractional CFO business, which I still do a fair amount of. And in, in early 2020, we rolled out Harvard Grace Capital, which is our private equity real estate arm. Uh, and, and so a lot of lessons learned and in, in, in 30 years of practice uh, can be applied to the real estate business as well. Uh, but as CFO, uh, you're, you're more than just an accountant. I am a CPA by training and by trade. Um, and so we're always about trying to do things the most efficient way possible. How do we do more with less people? How do we um, you know, even place equipment or processes and whatnot? Uh, and, and so we apply all of that to real estate investing as well. Uh, do I really need uh, four HVAC units, um, you know, for these, or can I share across, you know, that that type of stuff? Yep. Um, especially when it comes to remodeling, you change out tenants, you're gonna, um, um, you know, put in, uh, you're gonna do a build out for a new tenant, and so you're gonna apply those mm -hmm. lessons learned to. To that type of a situation as well so that's what yeah. that's really about really my cfo work okay cool interesting i never heard of the that fractional ownership like cfo type of business model before well a lot of people would just uh, there, there is a fractional everything these days <laughs> i've actually been um uh even back in the 90s when i had uh, just my own cpa firm i was doing these um uh, part-time CFO engagements or outsourced CFO and even back before it had a name I always enjoyed that kind of work I've never been the guy who wanted to do audits and taxes even though I've done both um, but I always just really enjoyed getting inside with the client and, and working alongside them and, and making things happen in an organization uh, so now it's come full speed there are yeah, you know, there are numerous firms, there's CFO to go, there's uh, now CFO, 
there's a B2B CFO and Tatum Partners. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. Uh, and like I said, I, I've been doing it since before it had a cool name. And um, uh, but, but so, so I, when I left my CPA practice and then I went into um, what we call industry, I started working directly as, as a W2 for other companies back in 2010. And then I came back out of that in 17. And so I went back out to what's really public accounting again, but, but I limit, all I do is, is CFO work. I don't do okay. any of the other stuff that a lot of CPA firms do. So, Okay, cool. So what are some of your biggest challenges? And I guess I'm interested in like the type of firms that you're working with. Yeah. Um, I, I work with, uh, um, not-for-profits, um, which is always a, a, a really good place for the fractional leadership role because uh, they need a lot of help uh, and may not have all the resources. Uh, I also end up working with a lot of real estate concerns, as you might imagine, on, on, on investment side, development side. Uh, I try to stay out of construction. I've been there, done that, and, and know enough to know that uh, leave that to somebody else. Um, <laughs> Construction's hard, and those guys deserve to to earn everything that that they get. Yeah, uh, seems like a lot of risk. Well, you know, it's manufacturing on the fly is what it is. You know, um, you know, construction is you know, if you're going to go manufacture cars, what do you do? You spend five billion dollars and build a manufacturing plant that doesn't move. If you're going to build a house, no, you've got to you got to make it up on the spot. You know, uh, and but it, it but the processes are the same. So. Um, I have other service provider companies, you know, basically B2B. I try to stay in the B2B world um, as far as clients that I serve. So I've got 12 clients right now, and that's enough for me uh, because my main focus is the, um, uh, is, is the real estate. I spend about half my time doing real estate. Don't tell my clients I spend that much time doing that. So, so you have about 20 oh. full-time jobs then? Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Depending on how many deals I'm working on during the week. So right yeah. now I have four, four deals on my table right now. So. Yeah. So what type of deals are those? Are there those office? They are office. Um, uh, we closed our first deal under the Harvard Grace Capital banner uh, in January. It's an office building in Spring Hill, Tennessee. Congrats. Um, right now, the deal that we're probably closest to is a Self-storage, especially self-storage um, uh, down in Huntsville, uh, huge margins. Um, and I really like this one because um, this one is uh, was built to be for RVs and boats. So they're all 20 by 50 units. It's 100% full um, and, and there's room for expansion. And um, so we're, we're, we're excited about taking that one down. Um, it's been a nice arm wrestle uh, between the seller and us. Yes, I think we've come to a fair price. and uh, We've got that under LOI, but I hope that we'll sign the contract uh, this week and, and, and get that done before, before Halloween. Uh, another one is sort of a pseudo uh, retail and development deal. So there's a, um, there's a business that has, um, it's mainly the assets, the land that we're after, but there's an operating business that's sitting on about 200 acres uh, near the state line area uh, between us and Huntsville. 
uh, and the land's worth far more than the business, although the business throws off about a billion dollars a year. So you can, um, you can, uh, you don't have to immediately jump in and start developing uh, if you've got a million dollar a year cash flow. Uh, and so that one's interesting. And then there's another portfolio of office and retail projects being sold by one owner down in Huntsville. Uh, you can tell our focus is sort of Huntsville. We call it the Tennessee Valley. Uh, okay. but, uh, that's it's down the road. We're not really interested in doing deals that we can't drive to within an hour. And because uh, we also manage. So. Okay. So you do yeah, have that's what, property management in-house? Yes. And yeah. is that across, it sounds like you just, so you do retail office and self-storage. Are those the three main asset classes that you guys focus in at this point? Yeah. Uh, I'm not opposed to multifamily. Uh, we won't manage multifamily because that's, um, yeah, that, that's, again, that's a job. Um, uh, but and we're not opposed to the multifamily class. I like it a lot. Uh, I just think it's overpriced right now. Um, you know, we we've I expect cap rates to um, to increase uh, as interest rates are increasing. But frankly, we're not hadn't seen it yet. Um, it's it's really quite amazing. In your as asset classes, or generally speaking, uh, in the multifamily market, uh, that that's why we're not really pursuing multifamily. Now, we do look at a lot of multifamily deals. We've not pursued any just because we, we, we think they're overpriced. So. Yeah. And for some of, our, some of our listeners who don't understand like cap rates or don't know what it is, can you just give a general overview of what a cap rate is and how it relates yeah. to interest rates? Yeah. Cap rate is short for capitalization rate. Uh, it is really nothing more than the rate of return that you expect to receive on the income that that property is supposed to um generate. So you calculate the cap rate by taking the purchase price and dividing it uh, uh, by the um, by the net operating income, the NOI, and that gives you a, a decimal. It should, and you, you translate that into a, a percentage, and so there, there, there lies the rate. Mm -hmm. Or the so other way around, if, right? NOI divided by purchase Forgive price. me, yes. No, yeah, you're if, good. You buy, if you buy a million dollar property, it's going to make $100,000 a year, you've got a 10 cap. Yep. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so you expect to make 10% on that at that purchase price, uh, you, you know, and that generally when people are talking about the cap rate, they're talking about the rate on the first year's NOI. Obviously, you expect NOI to increase over time, either from increased rents, reduced uh, expenses or better management and whatnot. So, mm -hmm. yeah, kind of that stabilization cap rate is what yes. you're kind of shooting for, right? Yeah. So That's what are you correct. guys seeing um, as far as cap rates and office and retail and self-storage right now in your area? Uh, office and self-storage are, are pretty in the, pretty much in the same tight range from six to seven. Uh, we bought our building in January at a 7.3. Very pleased about that one. Uh, and, and the deal on our self-storage unit will be 6.5. Um, now I'm breaking my own rule there. Now that'll be a 6.5 cap. Um, when the additional units have been rented, have been built and rented. So we're going to increase capacity about 50%. So, um, I think we're, we're paying about a six cap on, on the existing units. And then the, the additional purchase price is being allocated to the additional land that's with it. So that's, that's why I'm quoting the 
the cap rate, you know, which will really be 24 months down the road. Yeah. That's a little hidden gem you found there. 50% expansion. Yep. Yeah. How'd you find that yep. one? Just walking by throwing rocks. It was um, actually, uh, I know the broker and it's a, it's an off market deal. So um, for, for all the technology in the world, your relationships really do matter. <laughs> relationships matter. It also helps you've been cultivating those relationships in the same area for 35 years or so. Yeah, pretty much. Right. Yeah. That, that's great, man. So as far as you, did you start with office as your first? I did. Okay. Yeah. So uh, under the Harvard point... Grace banner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, of course. And six months ago, there were still many parts of the country where people weren't going to the office and, and you know, we had lenders and investors and are you crazy? That's part of the reason we got it at a 7.3. But I like to say down here in the South, we've been acting like there was no pandemic for over two years. So um, nobody ever stopped <laughs> going to the office here. Uh, I mean, maybe for maybe for a month. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, this building was 100% occupied and, and never had a hiccup. Um, and it still is. Uh, and, but still, you know, all real estate is local. Uh, and if you're talking to uh, investors in California or Chicago or whatever, they're like office, you know, everybody sees it through their own lens. I said, yeah, yeah. you really need to come to the South and, and see what's going on. So, um, uh, so office, uh, I've always loved office. I, I never really thought it was much of a hiccup. Office is changing. But you know, a lot of small organizations were already sort of at a hybrid workforce kind of a lot of people worked from home two to three mm -hmm. days a week what do you uh, see so that the, was yeah. yeah what do you see as the general mentality around the workforce where you're at like are, are they all gung-ho about coming into the office or do they like that more of that flexibility going forward or is it completely dependent on their situation depends on the situation you do have uh, i think extremes on both ends in the labor force you got the people who just love coming into the office, you know, and, and they love to be around people uh, all the time. And then you got the other people who never want to leave their bedroom, but they're really effective at what they do. Um, I think most people are in between. I myself, uh, you know, I'm working in my home office right now, and 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 I can't wait to uh, go see some people tomorrow when I hit the road and get. I, I love both, and I think that's where most people are. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, back in the olden days when I used to go to the office every day, you know, you kind of get sick of it. You know, you're sick of seeing the same people. You're sick of sitting at the same desk, same tree outside your window. Uh, so everybody likes a little variety. So I think that's where most people are. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Cool, man. Well, along with the other things that came across the desk, I saw your story that you went from 10 to, was it negative five in 90 days? What's yep. that? What's that about? You got to tell us this story. Sure. Yeah, uh, it, it's a story. Um, uh, I'm always embarrassed to tell it, but I mean, it's <laughs> it's been formative. Uh, so um, I got really, really, really involved in uh, investment real estate in, in 2001. You know, we had a recession back then too, after 9/11, uh, and um, uh, and, and just frustrated with my CPA practice and looking for some ways to build wealth outside of uh, my own hourly rate, if you would. 
Um, so started buying duplexes and, and uh, would leverage this property to buy the next property. And so I did that for seven or eight years. So um, uh, going into 2008, I, I had about 200 personal um, uh, rental units, no partners, no nothing. Um, I had uh, probably a dozen houses under construction that we were either renting or selling. And um, I had taken down, started out as rental units, then ended up buying an entire 72 unit um, condo complex, which I was redeveloping. And then we resold them out as, as uh, condominium. In 2007 was great, 2008. The first half of 2008 was great. Um, but then there were things like, um, you know, Bear Stearns going bankrupt and Lehman Brothers and people were going, oh, well, whatever, you know, and, and nobody's paying any attention. And then uh, Countrywide, um, which was the largest mortgage um, provider in the country, uh, announced to the world, I think it was July 27th, that they couldn't fund any of the loans they had due on the 31st uh, as, uh, of 2008. And, and so... I was in the middle of doing a deal. I had pulled a, uh, put together a personal financial statement for a bank as of July, June the 30th of 2008, using all appraised values, you know, so um, my share of, of these properties, you know, and yes, I had a net worth in excess of $10 million. Um, lots of different properties, uh, hardly any cash. Uh, 90 days later, 2008 was also a presidential election year, John McCain and Barack Obama. And uh, right after Labor Day, um, you know, there was a financial crisis, and nobody, which nobody really understood unless you go back and watch or read the big short. Um, and, and McCain says, let's, let's all go back to Washington and fix this. And, and Obama said, you go on, John. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he stayed on the campaign trail. So, so, and so, all of this was just swirling around. So, ninety days later, we were at a point where um, uh, you know banks were now uh, calling in lines of credit, canceling lines of credit. They were, which they did to me. Uh, they were doing no more uh, advances on construction loans. Um, I even had one bank um, sweep a trust account for. Uh, property management uh, to, to pay down a line of credit. Uh, and, and it was just all kinds of weirdness. And so at that point, you, you couldn't have given away a piece of com commercial property. Uh, and so I figured that I was probably upside down $5 million at, at that point, just within 90 days. You know, and I always say that I'm still convinced that the financial statement I did as of June 30 was completely legit. I mean, I was using appraised values. I, I wouldn't, influencing that whatsoever but anyway so i went through a whole year from that point to to um you know the fall of 2009 of giving everything away back to banks because we, we i had no carrying power and i had no ability to survive and that's where you may see my other point that what, what's my lesson learned um just the the power of having cash reserves i mean i thought I was, you know, I was CPA. I knew better. I'd seen people go under. Um, but, you know, everything had just gone up and up and up for years since 2001. I mean, why would it ever stop? You know, right. Um, you know, that will never happen. You know, um, 
and, and you know, so I, I probably had a gross real estate pro portfolio value of probably 25 million. You boil that down to net of the 10 million uh, value. Um, and if I had had reserves of 300,000, um, you know, maybe it's a half million. I, I could have survived that next 12 to 15 months and come out of it and sold some. I'm convinced some of those assets I would still own today. I mean, they were, they were, I built most of them and, and they were great stuff. So um, anyway, um, that's how you go from yeah. 10 to minus five uh, in 90 <laughs> days. You know? so, so how do you take those lessons learned into the business that you're operating in today's crazy times? Great question. Um, I've not forgotten. Um, in every deal that we do, we, we factor in uh, at least 12 months of carrying costs, assuming no income whatsoever as a reserve. I've had discussions, even disagreements with investors uh, who, ult who ultimately in invested, by the way, uh, but just, you know, um, that's too much. You don't need that much money. It's okay. I'd rather have too much. I'd rather have too much. And, 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 and you know, he, he's old enough, you know, he, he was an old guy like me, uh, the one who's, we were disagreeing. And, and you know, so he's seen some, some hard times too. So it, it's, so we may yet two or three years down the road, release some of those reserves back to the investors, but I would rather be in a position to uh, just survive and ha basically have some assets on the side that you're not expecting any return on. So, right. you know, you, you know, the, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, the 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 IRR calculator guy would say no no you, know, you can increase your IRR if you don't have all that sitting there on the balance sheet yeah okay um, yeah. I'd rather give up um, you know a half a percent of IRR and and not worry about how I'm going to make the the mortgage payment the next month yeah so. Well, it's all about so, risk adjusted returns and also aligning is. the risk profile with not only your company's investment thesis, but also of your investors, right? That's correct. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And our, our, um, our tagline, if you would, is delivering stable and increasing cash returns. Uh, and it's, it's, it's hard to um, have that stability factor if you don't have you know, reserves uh, yeah. in place on each exactly. deal and people people like that i mean there are there are plenty of investors out there who just want uh returns they want re first you know you know you know the old line first they want the return of their capital and then they want to talk about return on their capital yep so when you think about your investment thesis as the firm you, you talked to talk a little bit about the cash flowing piece of it so is your goal to be cash flowing day one of the of the new assets that you're ent entering into, yes, yeah, we're pretty much um, investing and pursuing only um, cash flowing investments, and, and you know from from day one, mature properties. That doesn't mean they all got to be 100 percent full. And, and one of the unique things I mentioned a minute ago is uh, the operating business with all the land. Well, that one's throwing off a million dollars a year. That gives you an awful lot of cash flow to be able to reposition and, and spend some money on development and, and things like that too. And I think at the end of 10 years, even on that one, 
you may have developed lots and sold off the lots, but at the end of the day, you're still going to have that operating business. Yeah. Until you sell yeah. that too. So yes, everything we do is targeted at cash flow. How do you think about the property taxes on that land? Do does it get reassessed when, say, you rezone it into a different use than it previously was? Or how how did you put together that deal from a tax perspective? Uh, it's an interesting question. Um, yes, the property taxes will get reassessed and then reassessed again, and then reassessed again. So it's gonna get reassessed the first time after the transaction takes place, you know, based upon the new purchase price. It'll get reassessed again when you go through and get it entitled for the new use. Um, and, and frankly, not every jurisdiction is is really all that current on those things. Um, in, you know, yeah. Lincoln County, where I am, I mean, it's a, it's a small rural county, so you know, they may go two, three years before they get around to it. The other side of that state line, Madison County, Alabama, where Huntsville is, which is the largest city in Alabama, you know, they're a little bit more on top of the ball game there. Um, so it, yeah, that that just becomes a factor, mainly in your cash flow. I mean, taxes, you know, aren't that major of a of a cost, especially if you are um, repositioning the property in, in order to sell it. Or develop it or sell it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, what is your guys' strategy around sale versus refinance? And how do you look at that? Is it different between different asset classes? Or is it purely uh, on to, location and business plan? Uh, to me, that's an asset by asset question. I love the, um, the refinance cash out, distribute to investors uh, and, and hold it. I mean, uh, to, to us, it's easier to continue to deliver those uh, stable cash flows on an asset we already know real well. Mm -hmm. There comes a time in every asset's life that it's time to um, it's time to sell it. Um, but I, I I've never really uh, liked the, um, the the five year hold mentality. Uh, I understand why that's promoted by the, the by the deal shops, and I'm not disparaging anybody. I understand that you know they got they got needs that they need to turn over capital, uh, but but we're more long term focused. Uh, you know, we don't have to do deals at our shop, uh, and we don't have to generate deal fees. We do charge deal fees, um, but we don't do deals to generate a fee. If that if that makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think the most tax efficient way to, to do this business is uh, get good assets uh, and then about every three years, maybe four years, um, depending upon market conditions, you refi that, pull money out tax-free, send it back to the owners and keep going. Yeah. So when you do that transaction, do you keep the same investor group as far as the shares and the LLCs as it were? And so the investors continue to get cash flow going forward on that yep. asset? Yeah. Yeah. Likely for the first year, they're not going to get as much in their quarterly distributions as they were before, but they also got a big slug of cash up front because your refund, your refund payment is bigger than the one you were paying. But mm -hmm. you know, you're going to pull out a million dollars, you're going to distribute that, uh, and, and then your monthly payment from then on out is higher. 
but your rents are higher and your NOI is higher and, and, and the whole, and there's no tax on that money. Yeah. So. Yeah. Especially when you think about, yeah, the depreciation. I mean, that's a huge value. Do you see more or how do you, how do you guys think about depreciation through those shorter term holds versus the longer term holds? And how do you guys yeah. think about, you know, 2022 being the last year of bonus depreciation? What are your investors thinking and what's your general thought process there? I do know some people who are eager to um, do a deal this year because they think it's the end of bonus depreciation. As I said earlier, I'm a CPA. Um, you know, there's always another tax act coming. And bonus <laughs> depreciation has been this concept coming that's been out there since uh, since the you know the 2008 2009 financial crisis. Uh, we had accelerated depreciation before that. Um, I, for one, think even perhaps before this midterm election, they may yet come up with another one. Maybe it's too late. They may put something in place in the lame duck section section after. Um, session rather after this uh, you know they always do something after the election and before the new congress sits um i don't think it's gone uh, they may do it um yeah you know as first order business next year uh, but for now what we know is it it's going away and it but, but it's not going away completely it's gonna go from 100 percent to 80 percent um yeah. which is still pretty good you yeah. know 80 um, percent yeah. Um, oh, wow. Now I've got to depreciate 20% of my asset over the next yeah. five years. Um, uh, taxes are what they are. I've got at least half of my investor base. They don't care about depreciation. They're investing out of their IRAs. Uh, and, and, you know, we're always trying to come up with creative ways to, um, to sort of balance that. Uh, but that's getting more and more difficult both with mm -hmm. securities re regulations as well as tax rules. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through the process of how your investors are investing their um, IRAs into your deals? Sure. Um, well, first it uh, needs to be a self-directed IRA. And you know, so you do need to have a uh, relationship with a custodian uh, who will handle that. Um, that. That could be Schwab. That could be New Day. There's, there's a whole bunch of them out there. There's probably one in your hometown, you can do that. It doesn't mean that they um, have access to your funds. It means that they are basically overseeing uh, the investment of uh, what's essentially supposed to be retirement dollars, uh, which uh, falls under the Department of Labor. So what, once it's uh, self-directed, then you can pretty much invest in, in almost anything that you can uh, imagine that's investable. Uh, so long as um, it's not an entity that you're in control of. You know, so you're not allowed to invest your IRA dollars into your own company, uh, per se. I know some people do it, um, and some of them do it well, uh, and those are technical rules, but you know, it's not something that's my understanding you're supposed to do. So other mm -hmm. than that, once you're in control of the funds, you can just... Um, uh, you then place it in whatever brokerage account you want, or in our case, you wire it into um, uh, whatever investment vehicle account we've set up for that deal. And, and then their ownership is titled to their IRA. 
Okay. And it, can you piecemeal it? Like, say you have 500, can you put like 200K of your SDIRA into one of your deals? Yep. Okay. Yep. You can do that if you also have personal funds as well as you have IRA funds. You can invest alongside your IRA in that. Uh, it is two different ownerships because they are different legal entities. So we have people who do that too. Interesting. So like straight cash and an mm -hmm. IRA alongside? Right. Okay. Yeah. So then how, what does the exit strategy look like when, when you sell or refi the asset? How does that cash go back, go back into the SDIRA? Are there any like stipulations or rules that they need to follow or things to look out for? When it goes back into the IRA, then it just becomes investable. It's tax-free transaction because it's, you know, uh, for tax purposes, that money is not come out of the IRA. I mean, the IRA just owns an entity that owns real estate. And so those funds go back in there and then, then the director of the, the manager of the IRA can invest those funds however they see fit. It's really quite simple. Yeah. No, no simple. different than it was if in your own checking account. Yeah, it's a great tool as well. Yeah, How did um, you, you say what percentage of your investor base uses this strategy, would you say? Uh, about half of my investors. Um, if uh, I think I read some research the other day that um, uh, over 60% of the IRAs that are out there are now self-directed. Uh, I don't know how many of those are doing, um, you know, uh, private deals or, or, or syndications, uh, mm -hmm. reg D type deals. Right. Did your investors at first have any like hesitation into doing this strategy or, and if so, like, how did you get them over the knowledge hump? So to say, of I, I had one and I worked with a guy up in Franklin, Tennessee, who, who does this. And, and so, you know, you had to find a, an independent source to give them comfort because you know, you know for one, I don't want them relying on my advice, right? Um, you know, regulatorily when they're talking about investing in my deal, but they also need to feel comfort themselves and get independent advice. Uh, yeah, they're okay, and you gotta. There's an awful lot of money managers out there who will tell you you can't do this. Uh, yep. I mean, as as recent as three or four years ago, you know, you, you know, some of the big no, no, you can't do that. You can't. Huh. There's been self-directed IRAs for twenty years <laughs> at least, yeah. and uh, but uh, you know, the it's bigger a fun little the house, hidden secret. Yeah, I mean, the the bigger the uh, the uh, institutional firm, the, the more they're going to tell you, oh, you can't do that. I mean, I've had banks tell me that, and because uh, you know, I remember one time I tried to go to a bank and just set up an account for an IRA uh, and they, oh yeah, you know, they had a whole investment. Or, oh yeah, well, we'll put you with, no, that's not what I asked for. Yeah. You know, I, I asked for an account that I could roll my IRA money into that I would manage. Oh no, you can't do that. So um, it's completely untrue. Now, now I think it's a little bit more understood and well known that, it, yeah, this has been in the law like forever. Um, and, and, but even Schwab comes along and allows you to do a self-directed E-Trade does that. I mean, I, I have that with, with, with E-Trade as well. Yeah. Uh, but you, you should be able to do it, uh, out of any brokerage firm or, or any bank that you want to, uh, mm -hmm. to custody your funds for you. But depending on who it is, you still may need a, um, 
a quote custodian who processes paperwork for you. Mm -hmm. Okay. But different than a janitor, right? Different yes. Not kind of okay. Just yeah. to clarify, yeah. okay. different kind of custodian. Yeah. Okay. Not that those aren't great guys, but well, they're all great guys. We they're grateful great guys. for them. I used yeah. to be one. So yeah, and a lot of them have four hundred one ks and IRAs too. So. Exactly. They probably knew this. Custodians working with custodians. <laughs> Who would have thought? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool, man. Well, that was. Thanks for dropping some gold nuggets there um, for our listeners. Sure. Hopefully, they got something out of it. Um, is is there one question that you wish I would have asked you during this interview? Um, maybe why am I so focused on Huntsville? Yeah. Because uh, I, yeah. I wanted to talk about that. the Tennessee Valley. We, um, uh, I, I like to call it the 845-65 corridor. So south of Nashville, there's a big interstate loop called I-840. And then through northern Alabama, there's I-565. And so I like everything in between those two. So a uh, bunch of nice rural towns. And then you've got the big metro of Huntsville, uh, the largest and fastest growing city of Alabama, and and probably very soon to be announced as the uh, official home of Space Command. You know, they've already got NASA based there. And, and you know, everybody made fun of uh, President Trump when he announced the new branch of the military space command, but it only makes sense for it for it to be in Huntsville. Um, but Huntsville reminds me of Nashville thirty years ago. I mean, okay. there's still only about a half a million people in all of northern Alabama, but growing ten fifteen percent a year. Um, it's a really cool town very highly educated town. You know, they do, they love to boast the highest number of PhDs per capita than any other city in the, in the nation. And uh, it's probably true. You know, they're all rocket scientists. Um, uh, and just, it's just chock full of opportunity. Every week brings some new piece of news um, that's good for Huntsville. Jeff Bezos has his rocket engine uh, company, Blue Origin, based in Huntsville. Um, Facebook has a massive data center there. Toyota Mazda just, uh, they actually just opened their new joint venture building engines and they started out hiring 4,000 workers and last month they, oh yeah, we're going to add another 3,000 to that. Uh, I mean, it's just every week there's something and, and um, there's just opportunity everywhere and, and it's not yet a saturated market. Cap rates, which I talked about before, you know, cap rates for multifamily uh, can be three and a half up in Nashville, way too expensive. I mean, you can't borrow for that kind of money. Right. Why, why are you wanting to pay for that kind of money? Um, um, because it's not saturated, there's, uh, you know, if I don't buy that one in Huntsville, I can go over here to this plot half a mile away and build another one. Because uh, so there's still real competition in deals. Uh, and, and and they'll both be filled, you, you know, in, in 24 months. So mm. anyway, just love its target-rich environment. Um, a lot of people know it now, but that's okay. Uh, it makes for a healthy marketplace because it's not saturated. Yeah, so, keeps you busy, out of trouble. Keep, yeah, it does. Yeah, which is always a concern for my wife. So. Always a concern. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, where can listeners get a hold of you or find out more about you? Yeah, the best way to get us is at harvardgracecapital.com. 
from there, you can uh, find our contact information. You can find my Calendly link. I invite all your listeners to um, who just have some time, want to book some time with me. I can talk real estate and investments uh, all day long. So you're, everybody's welcome to, um, uh, to to book an appointment. We'll, we'll have a great conversation. Uh, that, that's the best way, harvardgracecapital.com. Awesome. We'll put it in the show notes, everyone. And for all, all of our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And we look forward to the next time. See everyone. Thank you very much, Casey. Yeah. See you next time, man. See ya.